I've mentioned before that one of the favorite movies around our house is called Second Hand Lions. Well, what a neat movie. It's the story of a neglected boy by the name of Walter. I always call him Walter because that's the way this one guy referred to him. Walter. Walter is left by his mother. He's left in Texas with two old bachelor uncles. And the reason she leaves him with the uncles is they supposedly have a great fortune that they have hidden someplace, and she wants to get her hands on, on her money. So she abandons Walter at, at this house. And at first, the two old men are both set in their ways, and they find Walter's presence a nuisance. But they eventually warm up to him, and, and one of the uncles in particular begins to regale Walter with tall tales from their past. And so there's all this stuff going on that you see, and you never know if it's really real or if they're telling stories. But one of the old bachelor uncles has a speech for teenagers that he calls what every man needs to know about being a man speech. And after hearing part of that speech, the young nephew, starred for love and attention that he never got from his mother, tells his uncle, that's a good speech. When are you going to give me the rest of it? In the movie, many young men had been turned in the right direction because of that speech. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see what I have called what every woman needs to know about being a godly wife speech and what every man needs to know about being a godly husband speech. And this morning, since we're talking about wives and husbands together, what every mate needs to know about being a godly mate speech. And so this morning, I'm going to approach this text in Ephesians the same way that I do when an engaged couple comes and sits down in my office for premarital counseling. The young couple's in love. They want to get married. And if it were still possible today, if we still had bench seats, they'd be sitting, both of them, behind the steering wheel of the pickup truck. Remember those, remember those days? Now we have bucket seats, and so what has that done to love? And they're sappy about their optimism. And these are opportunities, these are teaching moments, moments to express God's pattern for marriage, for their marriage, the best way I know how, to these willing and listening ears. And so as I open the text in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, I tell the couple, we are going to talk and look at God's blueprint for your marriage, God's blueprint for your home. These verses in Ephesians lay out God's pattern for marriage. And I tell them in this passage, sometimes God is speaking to both of you. Sometimes he's just speaking to the bride or to the wife. And other times the Lord is dressing the husband or the husband-to-be. And I say out of the 13 verses in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, only three and a half of the verses are directed at the wives, while nine and a half verses are directed to the husband. That probably says something, but we're not going to go there yet. But I say, husband or groom, it's good for you to overhear what God tells your wife. And wife or bride, it's good for you to overhear what God tells your husband. And it's good for all of us, even here this morning in this place, for single adults and widows and divorced who are here this morning, or for young or older people contemplating marriage to overhear what God says to someone else in this text. It's good for you kids to be here this morning, to hear what God is saying to your parents and grandparents. You know, husbands and wives, we do conviction by proxy where we elbow each other. You don't do that. <laughs> that, that, that that's for you. You know, 
here's the time. Okay, kids, you know, you don't do it hard, but you have the opportunity. God is speaking to your grandparents, to your aunts and uncles, to your, to your parents. What God is saying to the Sunday school teachers and Awana leaders. Because having a better understanding of somebody else's God-given role and responsibilities will give you clarity and understanding on your concerning your old or your own role, whether it's in marriage or singleness, youth, adolescence, or old age. And for the most part this morning, we're going to see what God wants both the husband and the wife to know, because it's important to lay down a proper foundation. This is this is foundational. From God's word, I want to draw out the foundational principles of marriage that which we need to build our marriage and family upon. So the first thing we need to understand is that God created men and women with distinct differences, right? Well, let's go to Scripture. Clear back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. If you're using the Bible and the Rex on page 2, <laughs> you can't go wrong by going clear back to the beginning. That's what Genesis means. Genesis chapter 1, verse, verse 27. 27 verse says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created us male and female, and there are big differences, right? I often tell couples that opposites attract. It's a truism. You have many differences. You are attracted to somebody else because of the differences. I say, you don't look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and say, I want to marry somebody just like that. <laughs> That'd be really weird to begin with, but it's just not true. You are attracted to another person because of differences. Not only in gender, but in personality and talents, temperament. You have different likes, you have different dislikes, especially when it comes to food, right? I just don't get zucchini. I don't get squash. I just don't get it. And maybe one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my marriage was one Sunday morning when I was pastoring in Payette. I, I stood up during announcement time and I said, when you come into the church, when you leave your car, lock your cars before you come in. And everybody goes, and I said, because if you don't, somebody will leave a zucchini on the car seat. <laughs> and we didn't get any zucchinis for a long time. <laughs> And I was in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Some of us are good at math. Some of us can balance a checkbook. Others can't. Some are good cooks. Some are not good cooks. And these are not male and female differences. God created everyone unique with their own personality, their own talents, their own temperament. And even when we are saved, we get what? Spiritual gifts that are different from one another. And as we will see, God gives husbands and wives differing roles and responsibilities. The wonder of it all is that God would take two people who are so different and make them one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. So first of all, God created men and women with distinct differences, and every person is different from every other person. Secondly, a related foundational point is, if both of you were the same, one of you would be unnecessary. When I was a soccer coach, this is one of my favorite things to yell at the kids from the sidelines. Two or more kids are bunched together and they're not playing their position. And I would yell out from the sidelines, one of you is unnecessary. And sometimes the parents were just shocked. 
you would call my kid unnecessary right here in front of public and, and everybody. But the kids knew what I was saying because we had talked about it in practice. We don't need two kids, sometimes six, all defending the same two square feet of turf on that large field. If you are where you are supposed to be, doing what you are supposed to be doing, doing what you have been taught and trained and called to do, you know what's going to happen? You're going to excel in what you are doing. And you will enjoy playing soccer. And we might even win some games. Mike. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, look over at chapter 2, verse 18. We see, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Adam was created incomplete. Of course, all our wives know that, right? In creation, God performed one miracle after another, and four times God said that it was good. Then he created man and said, this is not good. He's incomplete. I will make a helper suitable for him, literally a helper that corresponds to him. Eve was created to provide the missing pieces of the puzzle in Adam's life. The word helper translates a Hebrew word that means to assist another in reaching fulfillment. To assist another in reaching fulfillment. One who will assist Adam by reaching fulfillment, by perfectly corresponding to him. Eve would complete him as a qualified corresponding partner. In God's original design, the plan was to have each, part, each partner distinct and unique, but necessary. Needing each other and therefore finding fulfillment in one another. Adam and Eve completed each other. And thirdly, in referring back to the image of God in which male and female were created, the image of God is reflected in two basic needs. We see the image of God in us in two basic needs. There, there's all kinds of other ways we're created in God's image when it comes to human needs. And we see these in Ephesians chapter 5 uh, concerning husbands and wives, that the specific individual roles of husbands and wives are built upon these two basic human needs and they because we are made in God's image. And the two basic human needs are built on this. First of all, God in his personal being, in his essence, is love. God is love. And secondly, as a God of design and purpose, he is the author of meaning. In other words, we are created in the image of God, and among other things, we too, like God, are personal beings. But unlike our infinite, our self-sufficient and perfect God, we are limited, we are dependent, we are fallen, which means that since God is love, we need love. We need love. And since whatever God does is significant and meaningful, we are also created to do something significant and meaningful, to participate in something significant. In its very essence, this is how God created us. So let me state these succinctly so, so they're a little bit easier to follow. The first is the basic human need for security. The basic human need for security. Being made in the image of God, we know that we are unconditionally and totally loved. 
that we don't need to change in order to win that love, that we don't need to do anything to win God's love. Security comes from unconditional love. God demonstrated his love for us in while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He says, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything. My love is unconditional. That's, that's grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Unconditional love. And it boils down to this. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you can do nothing to make God love you more. You can't do anything to make God love you more than, than he does because his love is unconditional. And you can't do anything that would make God love you any less. Nothing that would make God love you any less. God's love is freely given. It's a grace. It cannot be earned. It can't be lost. Every human being needs unconditional love. And second, every person as created in God's image needs significance. Significance means that we are engaged in a responsibility or a job or we're doing something that's truly important, that's meaningful, that, that brings meaning to life, that we participate in results that have eternal impact, something that will last for eternity, something that will last, something that has a fundamental and meaningful impact on another person. We are created to, make to, made, we are created to want to make a difference in the world. That's the way we are created. And as believers in Jesus Christ, God gives us significance as we participate in the Great Commission, doesn't he? As we make disciples, we make an eternal impact in people's lives. There is nothing more significant than making a difference in somebody else's life for all eternity. I remember that uh, when I was called into ministry and the day after that I, I felt God's call and and uh, we were, Jan and I were sitting at the, the table and, uh, at our home and wondering what all this means and where we're going to go from there. And every lunch hour, we fed Ben in the high chair and we listened to uh, John MacArthur, who came on at 12 o'clock at that time, and then uh, Chuck Swindoll, who came on at 12.30. And Chuck Swindoll came on, and I can still see Ben in the high chair with carrots or something on his face, you know, and, uh, and uh, Chuck Swindoll said, I usually don't talk about what we consider vocational full-time Christian ministry or service, but I'm going to talk about it today. So all of a sudden, we ignored Ben, and we turned up the radio, and, and the bottom line was, he said, there are only two things that are eternal in this world. God's going to wipe out everything else, people in the Word of God. People in the word of God. Where are you spending, he said, your time, your talents, your calling into those things, those people who are going to live forever. People in the word of God. We are designed to want to be significant, to do something uh, meaningful in life. And there is nothing more significant than being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Nothing more significant than being a disciple of Jesus Christ. North, there's nothing more significant than being a child of God, or nothing more secure than being a child of God. There's nothing more secure than being a child of God, and there's nothing more significant than being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Being a person created in the image of God involves an identity 
that requires security and significance if we are to function effectively. We need to know that we are unconditionally loved and we need to know that what we do makes a difference in this world. So what does that have to do with Ephesians chapter 5 in the marriage relationship? Turn once again to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Verse 25, page 1433. Even though both a man and a woman have, both of them have the same two basic needs for security and significance, since they are created differently as completers of one another, their needs for security and significance vary from one another. Although a woman needs or has a basic need for significance, her greater need, which overshadows, which is greater than her need for significance, her greater need is how God created her with the need for security. For security. Her greater need is to know that she is unconditionally loved. It outweighs her need for significance. It outweighs her need to make a difference in the world. Of course, women need to know they make a difference in the world, but her need for security is greater. To know that she's unconditionally loved, that she doesn't have to win love or earn love. What a tragedy of, of junior high girls and adolescent girls today who, who are taught that they have to win and earn love. That, that's a tragedy. They need to be loved unconditionally. That she is loved as God loves. Therefore, what is the command to husbands concerning their wives? Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husband, love your wife unconditionally, the same way that Christ Love the church. He gave himself up for the church. Love her sacrificially. Love her unconditionally. Don't make her think that she has to earn love or win love to be unconditionally loved. Because that's not unconditional love. And this fulfills, this completes her greater need. And do you know the Bible never commands wives to love their husbands? I think one of the reasons is because it comes more naturally for women to love in that way. Because that's what, what they need. They're encouraged to love in Titus 2.4, but it's not a command. Why? Because even though a man has the same basic need for security and significance as every person created in God's image, a man's need is greater for significance than, than security. He needs to know that what he does makes a difference in the world, that it's meaningful. Men more than women need to know that what they do makes a difference in the world. That's the way God made us as men, to be providers, to be protectors. That's the way he made us. So, so how is a wife a completer in this regard? The command to wives, rather than being to love her husband, which brings security, is what? Look at verse 33 at the end of the 33rd verse. And the wife must see to it that she what? Loves her husband? No, respects her husband. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, he completes her in the area of her needed security. She knows her husband will lay down her, his life for her. When a wife respects her husband, she completes him in the area of his needed 
significance and, and meaning in life. He needs to know from his wife that what he does makes a difference in the world. As men, we need to know that going out that door every morning or wherever we go to work and doing whatever it is we do in the world makes a difference. And that we're respected by our wife for that. That going out every day and doing what we do is significant. A man needs to feel like what he does is worthwhile. That his wife respects him for it. That going out every day or even working at the home office, whatever it is, whatever he does is significant. Because that's something that all men struggle with, being significant. And it's interesting, you know, every time there's a downturn in the economy or there's a recession or even in the Great Depression, why are these kinds of economic situations so hard on marriages? Because often the man loses his meaning. He loses his job or he loses the respect of his wife because things are so hard and all of a sudden, you know, his need for significance and meaning is, is at risk. When I was in seminary in Dallas and working some 30 hours a week and going to graduate school, working for a ministry at Insight for Living, there would be nights that I would work on an exegetical assignment till 2, 2.30 in the morning. I have to get up at 5, 5.30 in the morning and get on the Dallas tollway just so I make sure I miss all the traffic in case, because if, if you hit the traffic, you're not going to get there on time. You know, there were times when I thought, I just can't do this another morning. <laughs> Why am I doing this? I just can't go out there and do this. And Jan would encourage me. Now, this might sound silly, but it ministered to my heart. She would say as I'd go out the door in the morning, you're so brave. You're so brave. You know, and I was for a while. And then there would be those mornings she'd say, you know, you're so brave. And I'd say, no, I am desperate. And then she changed it to, you're an inspiration of desperation. <laughs> and another thing that Jen did, though, she would make my lunch every day. And she'd put in a scripture passage, put in an encouraging note right on the top of the lunch. And I was 50 years old, and I had a NASCAR lunch pail that we didn't know where it came from. But we had this NASCAR lunch pail, you know, and I had NASCAR. You know, for a long time at Insight for a Living, they thought I was a redneck. And I finally had to, had to say, no, I've never been to a NASCAR race. I just got stupid lunch pail. And so I'd open my lunch pail at lunch. We'd be around the table at Insight for Living. And it got to the point where my coworkers wanted me to read Jan's notes out loud because they wanted to be blessed as well and encourage them as well. And and one of the women at the table remarked, if I ever get married again, I want a wife just like that. <laughs> she didn't mean anything weird by that, but she was, you know, she wanted a mate, somebody who would minister to her in that same way. And this brings us to the attitude that we are to maintain in our marriage relationships. What is the attitude? What is the basic attitude that we are to have in marriage? In marriage... We are to have an attitude of ministry to one's mate. An attitude of ministry to our spouse. Every one of us as a believer is complete in Jesus Christ, right? Whether we're married, single, divorced, old, whatever we are, we are complete as a child of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, I am unconditionally loved. In Jesus Christ, I participate in meaningful ways as a child of God, in God's plan and his purposes for all eternity. Nothing is more significant than that. 
Every believer is totally secure and remarkably significant in Jesus Christ. God meets our every need in this regard. But for those of us who are in a married relationship, God puts us together so that in completing one another, we might be serving instruments of God's graces of security and significance. God meets many of our needs through our mates. In other words, husband, God wants you to minister his unconditional love to your wife. God wants you to minister his unconditional love to your wife through you. His love through you. You are his completer or her completer. And wife, God wants to minister, wants you as a minister of Jesus Christ to your husband. As he fulfills your husband's basic need for significance, you are his completer. God wants to minister through you to your spouse. This is so important. It's so foundational. And if you don't get this, you miss everything else. You must get this. The primary role of every husband, every wife, the primary role, the essential role, is to be a minister of Jesus Christ to your mate and to your family. To be used of God to meet their needs. To be an instrument of God meeting their needs. When I love my wife as Christ loved the church, of course with his help, and gave himself up for her, I serve her as a minister, as a servant of Jesus Christ. And when the wife respects her husband and has a submissive spirit, she ministers to him as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first thing required of every wife, the first thing required of every husband, is a servant's heart toward your mate. To minister to one another as Christ would minister to your mate if he were physically present in your home. If Jesus was physically present in your home, what would he do for your spouse? That's what we are called to do for our wives and for wives to do for their husbands. God gave me my wife so that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to her. And she is my wife so that she might be a minister of Jesus Christ to me. That God might use my wife as an instrument of meeting the needs that he has promised to meet and will meet. The primary role of a husband, the primary role of a wife is to serve one's mate as a minister of Jesus Christ, to have that submissive servant heart that was modeled by our Lord, who humbled himself and took the form of a servant, and who modeled true servanthood when he washed the feet of his disciples. So we have looked at the basic human needs of security and significance, and how husbands and wives are to minister to one another, or to put another way, to serve one another. So we have three S's, security, significance, and, and service. I, I'm not as good as John MacArthur, who he can start every point with the same letter. I've never been able to do that. But if I could have put the outline together that way, that's what I would have done. I would have said security, significance, service, and now we come to another S. We are to be subject to one another or in submission to one another. And you're thinking... I thought wives were to submit to husbands. Yes. Well, look at verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5. Before we get to verse 2, where it starts talking about wives. 
Before Paul talks about the roles of husbands and wives, he brings up the subject of submission or of mutual submission or subjection. Verse 21, he says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now notice verse 22. Wives, if you have a New American Standard or King James Version, you'll see the words be subject are in italics. That doesn't mean they're emphasized. That means they're not in the original Greek text. And so the context is be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands. Wives to your own husbands. So we need to understand what does it mean to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And incidentally, we may talk about this more next week, but uh, actually it's saying subjecting to one, yourself to one another in fear of Christ because this is the result of being filled with the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit of Christ. In verse 19, because we are filled, we are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Another participle, verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. If you are filled with the Spirit, then you will be subjecting yourself, subjecting one to one another in the fear of of Christ. So what does this whole idea of subjection or submission mean? So we're going to look at it in general today and then we'll have to wait till next week to look at it in specific in the marriage. The Greek word translated submitting or be sub to be subject depending on your translation is hupotasso. Hupotasso comes from two Greek words, hupo, h u p o, which means under. Hupo means under and tasso T-A-S-S-O, which means to place or to arrange. So it means to place or to arrange under. Now, in a military sense, the word hupotasso means to rank under or to rank beneath. Now, the word in Scripture is not used strictly to the military sense in its usage. It's used in a lot of ways that help us understand it. For example, in Scripture, we are to submit to God. We are to place ourselves under God. James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We are sub to submit as believers to the government. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. No matter how hard this is, no matter what we see on, on TV and what's going on in Washington, D.C., Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority. For the Lord's sake, we are to place ourselves under. We are to submit to the leaders of the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. As Christians, we are to submit to one another. We are to rank ourselves under one another and others in a multitude of ways, almost every aspect of life. But the military analogy works well in our understanding of submission, especially on account of the severe attack on marriage and family today. We are at war, folks. The biblical concept of marriage and family is under severe attack. So let's take this back to the meaning of the word. In the fourth century before Christ, Alexander the Great, by the age of 30, can you imagine, had conquered the known world. Alexander never lost a battle. 
He never knew defeat in battle. And in fact, it's a little off the subject, but Alexander died at such a young age is because he he'd basically conquered all the known world. He got into India and had really a hard time, but they won every battle. And he thought just about the time he had it, he heard there's this place we call China today, past then. Alexander, in depression, went back to Babylon, got himself drunk on a regular basis, and he got caught in a rainstorm, and he died of pneumonia at the age of 30. But he never knew defeat in battle. He even defeated the feared Persians, who under Darius III had earlier defeated Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon. The Persians ruled the eastern world until Alexander came on the scene. And you remember the prophet Daniel served the great Persian king, Darius I. And so Darius III, Alexander defeated Darius III at the Battle of Arbella. And he changed the course of human history and fulfilled the prophet's of Daniel and other places in Scripture about the falling of the kingdoms and the coming of the new kingdoms. So, and so he changed the course of human history. He never lost a battle. The noun form of hupotasso to rank under submission is hupotoxis. Hupotoxis was the key to every one of Alexander's victories. Hupotoxis refers to the, the taking of a position in the phalanx, he called it, of a military unit. Alexander conquered the world with the phalanx in Hupotoxus. Now, a phalanx is a body of heavily armed infantry in ancient Greece, and they formed in close ranks and files. The units or the soldiers would form in close formation. Remember about this time last year, kids, that you guys came up with your full armor of God? And you stood there with all your great armor and all that kind of thing and, and recited your scripture passage and stuff. And what did you do at the very end? It wasn't a phalanx that you formed. What was it called? Do you remember? The turtle. Testudo. That's what the Romans called it. They would be under heavy fire and under archers and arrows coming down, rain on tall. And they would yell out, Testudo! Testudo! And they formed in these ranks where some of them put the shields above them and there were shields on the side. And I can still picture the kids last year where these little cute girls were clear underneath. <laughs> you know, fully protected <coughs> by the shields and the swords of the, the older kids. That is hupotoxis. That is being in hupotasso. And so in Alexander's army, they formed a wedged formation. And they had these heavily armed hoplites, they called them. These, these armed, you know, they had spears and huge shields. And these were big guys in armor. And, you know, their shields were just packed tight together. And there's no getting past them. Uh, because the first thing, if you charge them, there was the, the, she, the, the spears that were coming out two layers because there was one layer of these guys and then there was another layer. And so there was these long spears sticking out and then there were short spears sticking out if you got past those. And then in the middle of the phalanx, then there was, there was the archers. And there was these lightly armed skirmishers and reserves, these guys that could move very quickly and had a completely different thing. And when the opposing army did happen to break through the line, the line would reform and the quick and accurate archers and skirmishers would finish anybody off that got through. 
Oftentimes, Alexander did this on purpose. He planned it on purpose. That's why Darius was defeated. They had these chariots rushing at them, and you know, all these multitude of chariots, and then all of a sudden the line opened, and they couldn't stop. They came clear into the middle. The line formed back in, and then the archers and the skirmishers finished them off. Because a, a chariot that can't go anywhere and the horse is just rearing up and down, these guys were, were ahead. And so the chariots were easily captured behind enemy lines. Alexander had no navy to speak of. He had no chariots. He had very few horses. And he never lost a battle. Why? Because every one of his troops was in hupotasso, in submission. Each one was where he was supposed to be doing, where he was supposed to be doing what he was supposed to be doing, trained in position in Hupotasso. And none of them were unnecessary. I think about this. What if the archer said, you know, man, I'm frustrated with my life. Why don't I get to do that over there? Why don't I get to go over there? I'm going to assert my rights and I'm going to get down there with the heavily armed and shielded hoplites, and I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with those guys, he would be chariot fodder in a flash. Not only that, the line would probably collapse at that point, and the battle would be lost. In Alexander's military, everyone was submitting to one another, including Alexander. The generals, every officer, the heavily armed hoplites, the archers, the, the skirmishers, even the cook. Alexander was the one that first said, an army travels on its stomach. What if the cooks refused and didn't fix the meal before the long march? It doesn't mean that the cook is a lesser man than the general or not as important as the hoplite. He might even be more important than a particularly armed soldier. But structure and submission to the structure is necessary for victory. In practical sense, hupotasso means voluntarily to be where you are supposed to be doing what you are supposed to be doing. If we were to put it in Christian terms, submission means voluntarily be where God has called you to be doing what he wants you to do. In marriage, the structure of hupotasso is necessary if the Christian family is going to be able to stand against the attacks of the evil one. Biblically in marriage, we know that the partner's spiritual natures are the same. There's no male or female in Christ Jesus. Their positions are equal before God. You know, men are not spiritually better than women or superior in any way. But in order for the family to function in harmony and to avoid conflict within and to withstand the onslaught of the enemy from without, the members of the family must be in hupotasis. Husbands must be in hupotoxis, wives must be in hupotoxis, children must be in hupotoxis. And if we broaden it outside the family, into the workplace, because that's where Paul goes in Ephesians chapter 6, we won't go that far, but employers must be in hupotoxis. Employees must be in hupotoxis. In the church, pastors must be in hupotoxis. Teachers must be in hupotoxis. Deacons and deaconesses must be, as well as every member of the body. Submission means that voluntarily with a humble spirit and with a servant's heart, be where God has called you to be, doing what God has called you and wants you to be. And then next Sunday, we'll look specifically at what that means for husbands and wives. Shall we pray?
Our Heavenly Father, we know what the severe attack is upon marriage and the family today, Lord. And as we, as we watch the news, as we hear about things, Lord, as we see families disintegrate and even in our own community, Lord. Uh, Father, we, we thank you that uh, you have given to us your word that you have designed marriage and family the way that it's, it's supposed to work, Father, so that it might be a living illustration of how Christ loves the church. Between Christ and his bride, the church, Father. And I pray as we continue in these studies and we continue with our prayer parenting series on, on Sunday night, Lord, I, I pray for a special protection upon our families in this church, Father. Because I know the enemy is going to come at us with everything that he's got, Lord. But we thank you that you have given us the victory in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you would give us security and love and joy and significance and meaning in our families and in our whole church, Father as we listen to your word and we obey your word, Father, and that we might know the joy of the Lord in all of our service to one another. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.